The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. This week, Chrissy speaks with veteran journalist, speaker, and writer for GreenBiz.com, Mark Gunther. He's a contributing editor at Fortune Magazine and a lead blogger at the Energy Collective. He's also a husband and father, a lover of the outdoors, and a marathon runner. And he's also at Dulles International Airport today traveling down to Houston. So we're very excited that you took the time to speak with us today, Mark. Welcome. Thanks, Chrissy. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I hope it'll be uh, quiet in the airport here so we can have a good conversation. Sure. It, sound, it sounds remarkably good. So good. we'll see. We'll see if we hear. I'm, you know, I love airplanes, so occasional airplane flying overhead is, you know, never a bad thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about your latest book, uh, Suck It Up. Uh, it's a, it's a really good read. And, um, I definitely gleaned a lot of information from it and I'm excited for you to, to expound upon it. Talk to us about this book. Well, thanks. Um, a couple of things have been fun and interesting for me in terms of writing the book, uh, both the topic and then the way I've distributed it as well. So first the topic, it's about a new technology, uh, still unproven, but with great potential, which is called direct air capture of CO2, carbon dioxide. So to put that in a little bit of perspective, as you and anyone who's been paying close attention knows, the climate change problem is getting worse. It gets worse every day. Uh, There's been no progress in terms of either international or U.S. law uh, limiting carbon emissions. And so the question arises, you know, everything we've done so far essentially has not worked to deal with the climate problem. Is there another way to come at it? And that's where this idea of uh, pulling CO2 out of the air comes into play. We've been unable to stop burning fossil fuels, which is what causes the climate problem. Maybe we should think about it differently. Instead of trying to get people to stop flying, as I will today, or driving, as I assume you did on the way up to the station there, or or burning electricity, Uh, maybe we should figure out a way to clean up the mess that that burning fossil fuels makes, and that is the CO2 in the air. Okay. That is, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, because driving up today, I I couldn't help but but think about the, the issue, you know, just driving around and driving up and seeing all the trucks spewing emissions i am spewing emissions to get up here and and i think about what this makes me think about is the actual debate of climate change because i get it all the time from people who really don't don't believe in it and they really think that it's something that is uh concocted by progressive people who are just looking to parlay their work into something bigger and larger whatever have you how do you address that issue Well, it's hard to talk to people who aren't rational about it, but what I will say is that there are some very well-known and proven things about the climate issue, and then what even those of us who are concerned about it have to admit is there are some uncertainties. So in about 30 seconds, here's what's known. What's known is that burning fossil fuels put CO2 into the atmosphere and that it has unbalanced the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. There's always been CO2. There's now more than there has ever been. This causes the greenhouse effect. 
Um, you can measure those concentrations. They've gone up steadily for, you know, 100 years since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. They've gone up steadily the last 20 years when we've been at least talking about doing something about it. Um, there's just really no debate about that. The debate begins to kick in when you say, what does this mean to the climate? What does this mean to the weather? And even the good climate scientists will tell you there is some uncertainty about that. But if we think about it, that uncertainty should be also a reason to act, not a reason to do nothing, because, you know, the odds are it's going to make the planet warmer. There's some chance it could cause some catastrophic effects. I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, but people talk about, you know, the, the melting away of the Arctic, the release of methane from Greenland, all these so-called tipping points. But the fundamental point is, you know, most climate scientists, 98%, I think is the number, agree that, you know, climate change is going on, it's caused by man, and we need to do something about it. And and I, I don't know, that's just a debate that, that I find if you can't get people to go there, hard to have the conversation at all. Right. And it's it's one that I have frequently with people. And it really is the issue, too, of what we are putting putting into the air. And you've mentioned, you know, at the end of your, your book, you mentioned that burning fossil fuels has clearly had a benefit to our society. It's just the byproduct of it is something that was unforeseen. And so now there are all these technologies that are coming into play that are trying to literally suck it up. They're sucking the CO2 out of the air. Some of these companies are fascinating to me. Talk to me about a few of these. Okay, so essentially what's ha it's a new idea. It's only about 10 or 15 years old. That's very new in science. And there are three companies that are pursuing this idea of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. And, and they're similar in a way. They each use their own technology. But they're similar in the sense that each one was started by a very prominent scientist. Uh, I'll run the names by you quickly. There's one now called Kilimanjaro Energy which was started by a Columbia professor named Klaus Lackner, who really dreamed up this idea. And that one is backed by, or was backed by, the late Gary Comer. He was the founder of Land's End, the clothing company. Mm -hmm. He went on a sailing trip up through the Northwest Passage and found essentially there wasn't much ice there and got kind of alarmed about the climate issue. He gave a lot of money to research, and he also gave, I think, $8 million to start this company. So this kind of pairing of a scientist and a business person investor is, is the case at all three. Uh, the second one is called um, Global Thermostat, kind of a fun name for Zika. because the idea is, you know, you can turn the thermostat up and down if you want it 68 degrees today and 70 degrees tomorrow. Of course, it's not that simple. But Peter Eisenberger, very prominent scientist and businessman himself, former Exxon researcher, then he started the Earth Institute at Columbia, and his backer is Edgar Brofman Jr., who is a Seagram's Fortune music industry mogul, etc. I think he's put in about $15 million. Hmm. And then the third, and maybe to me the most exciting because of the people involved, is a company called Carbon Engineering. They're based up in Calgary in Alberta. David Keith, uh, leading physicist and climate scientist, also has done a lot of work around geoengineering, which this is not exactly, uh, is the founder. And Bill Gates is one of the investors. 
um, as is a good friend of uh, Bill Gates. His name's Jay Blumenthal. Jabe actually invented Microsoft Excel, and he's a climate activist in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. So in each case, you have very mission-driven scientists, and I also think mission-driven investors saying, um, is this technology, which involves a variety of chemical processes that I hope you won't ask me to explain <laughs> to you in detail, <laughs> to I basically move, move air through big machines and pull the CO2 out. And again, I don't want to oversell this. It's a very new technology. There are critics who, who say it's very expensive. No one says it can't be done because every time sailors go down underwater in a submarine, there is a similar technology that pulls CO2 out of the air so they can continue to breathe. The same thing was true on you know, space shuttles when people are in space for a long time. So we know how to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. Uh, the question is at what cost and can it be done on a very, very large scale, which would be required to have an impact on um, the climate issue. Mm-hmm. And then this begs the question of, of why why hasn't uh, climate change, why why haven't we done anything about it? We, we, we debate it, we debate it in Congress, we talk with our naysayers or people who believe in it, we try to do something about it, and the bottom line is that nothing's been done. And so these companies are basically saying, we're going to do something about it. And we're going to... Yeah, and that's a great... No, that's a great question, Chrissy. We could have done a whole program on why we've made essentially no progress on the climate issue, despite all the efforts. And there have been real efforts both in Washington and the environmental movement and in the business community. I mean, we've certainly all heard about, you know, everything from the Prius to IBM's Smarter Planet to GE's Eco-Imagination. But but the numbers tell you none of that has made a difference. And I, I think the reason for that is this is a very peculiarly difficult problem to solve. It, it really requires politicians to do something that they they are almost, you know, genetically incapable of doing, and that is uh, requiring people to make sacrifices today for benefits in the future. I mean, in a way, the climate problem in that way is like the deficit problem. You know, we want to spend money. We don't want high taxes, so we put the deficit off into the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, it's like the problem of people who don't, you know, have discipline over a variety of things in their own life. They can't save for retirement or they can't, you know, push away the extra plate of French fries when they're trying to lose weight. And <laughs> uh, all those things are hard. You know, we're all people who want what we want, and we want it now. And for politicians especially, um, you're asking them to impose a cost on people because things like solar and wind and other forms of clean energy are more expensive. Uh, and the benefit will not come during this term or next term. The benefit will probably come 10, 20, maybe 40 or 50 years down the road when we avert serious climate problems. That's mm-hmm. just a... And that's only one reason we could get into the question of, you know, how you get a global agreement because you do need that. You could get into the question of, you know, who has to do how much to solve this problem. You know, the Chinese are the biggest carbon polluters right now, but they have historically been very low. So are we going to ask more of them than we're going to ask of ourselves? I don't think so. You know, it's just a devilishly complicated problem. And my thinking on when we're going to deal with it directly, because we do have to do that, this is not the solution, it's a solution, is we're probably not going to deal with it directly till we 
you know, have the equivalent of a, you know, Pearl Harbor of climate where there is really a disaster and, and the whole country and the whole world is sort of moved mm-hmm. to act. I don't think we're going to do anything in the immediate term. And again, that's why I was, you know, excited and hopeful to write about this um, air capture of CO2. It is a really, it is a f- fascinating topic and it's almost it reminds me something of like a science fiction movie you know where you have these big sucking machines that just suck the co2 out and and life is good where where there's got to be a market right for the co2 why we well that's the problem chrissy yes go ahead i'm sorry i interrupted you no 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 i just i am thinking about all of these entrepreneurs here starting these companies and, and these investors and there has to be you know an roi on this so when you suck the co2 out of the air you're gonna be making money on it or else they- well, if, if it's if you're right, these are businesses. They're not nonprofits, even though I do think they're fundamentally businesses that exist because they want to make a difference. So here's the theory, and I do want to stress this is not me <sighs> speaking. This is me kind of describing what they've told me. Sure. But there is. I was surprised to learn, and and again, this was sort of the fun of writing the book that there is a market for. CO2, that there are people out there buying it. And when you stop and think about it, we all know this, that, you know, how does, how does Coke get the fizz in a, in a, in a soda? Um, where does dry ice come from? Those are made out of CO2. But there's a much bigger market, and that is getting oil out of the ground. And here we come to kind of one of the delicious complexities of the story. Um, the opportunity for these companies is to take the CO2 from the air turn it into a liquid, which again can be done if you have energy, and then put it into the ground to get oil out. It's a little bit like this Mm. fracking idea that we've heard about with natural gas. Mm. Um, The irony is you have environmentally green-minded companies using the oil industry to get their business started. Um, What they'll tell you, and I think the science here is pretty solid, is that if you get oil out of the ground and you push a lot of CO2 and bury it in there to get the oil out, you've still done something of an environmental service because the oil that comes out is considered a lower carbon fuel. Uh, The market for it might be airlines, which are looking for lower carbon fuels as they get taxed. It might be the state of California, which has some regulations on low carbon fuels. So, Step one is get the cost down, pull the CO2 out, sell it to the oil industry, which pays prices of, you know, $30 to $150 a ton roughly for for CO2, and see if you can start to build these machines in some kind of number that matters. Mm-hmm. I think that's really kind of step one. That's how they all hope to get their businesses started. Steps two and three are kind of more interesting from a green business standpoint. Um, they One might be, step two, you might think of as feeding these CO2 to algae, which need um, a rich air with CO2 to grow quickly, and then you could make biofuels. So you're starting to um, have this notion, as I sit here, you can't see me, but I'm kind of rolling my hand in a circle because <laughs> you're closing the circle of CO2. You're basically yeah. burning it in a biofuel. It goes into the air. You're pulling it out of the air. You're feeding it back to algae and making more fuel. 
So that that's pretty interesting from a green, low-carbon point of view. And finally, the kind of uh, sort of, I was going to say, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or, you know, holy grail here is this idea, and again, hard to get your arms around it or eyes around it, but it's it's at least theoretically possible that you could take CO2 out of the air, then you have water, you separate the hydrogen and the oxygen in the water, you combine the carbon with the hydrogen, you make, in effect, a synthetic hydrocarbon, and you're basically making fuels without you know, needing natural gas or oil or anything else. Mm. Now... For it to make either scientific or economic sense, this whole thing would have to be powered by renewable energy. You couldn't power it with natural gas or oil because or, it wouldn't make sense. Mm. But at least hypothetically, and, and all the companies say this is true, what you then do is you make if any company, any country in the world that has one of these machines and has access to water and sunlight, which basically means any country in the world, can begin to become a producer of, in effect, oil and other transportation fuels. So it's a very, you know, radical idea, but it essentially means the the whole notion that we're getting our oil from Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Mexico or Brazil or Canada um, doesn't matter anymore. You know, Costa Rica and Hawaii and, uh, you know, Belgium can all become oil producers right. if they have these machines, sunlight, and fresh water. Right. So, you know, that might be 50 or 100 years off. Maybe it'll never happen. But again, I guess, you know, the reason I wrote the book, I guess I should mention the name one more time. It's yes. called Fuck It Up, How uh, Capturing Carbon from the Air Can Help Solve the Climate Crisis, is because there's so much gloom and doom around climate. I thought this was an at least a glimmer of hope, a kind of, you know, pathway out that not enough people have paid attention to. And although I was skeptical when I first heard about it, the more I looked into it, um, certainly there's mainstream scientists who question it, there are environmentalists who question it, but the fact that you have these three prominent scientists plus someone who is as smart and thoughtful as Bill Gates, all feeling this was worth devoting their time and money and energy to, um, made me think it was a story worth telling. Mm -hmm. For our listeners, we're, we're speaking with Mark Gunther. He's a veteran journalist, speaker, and writer, and his latest book is called Suck It Up, How Capturing Carbon from the Air Can Save the Climate Crisis. Mark, let's talk about... Christy, can I just say one thing about the book itself sure. that's sort of fun for me and maybe for, for your listeners? Yeah. So I've written four other books over my too long journalistic career going back to the 1980s. I'm old. Yeah. But no, you're not. the fun thing about this one is it's an ebook. So I've never written an ebook. I was able to write it essentially, you know, at a length that made sense to me. So it's not a full length book. It's more like a long or very long magazine article. I'm told people can read it in about an hour. So that was kind of cool. You know, you don't have to write a book. It was more than an article, but not a full-length book. And the other cool thing is because of the ebook platform, I could sell it for a buck ninety-nine. You know, basically the cost of a coffee at Starbucks. So for me, because I was excited about the idea, this seemed like a fun way to spread the idea 
in a way that even an article in Fortune or a full-length book would not because, you know, not everyone gets the magazine and certainly not a lot of people want to spend $25 for a book on a subject they probably really don't know much about. So right. this whole idea of, of doing it as an ebook with Amazon has turned out to be fun. And one more, for me, fun thing about it is I basically sent them a manuscript on like a Tuesday and the book came out on Friday. Oh, you know, that's if you've ever worked in, in the, the hard, <laughs> yeah, in the hardcover world, it's like nine months from manuscript to book. And having said that, there were a few typos that got out there and we fixed them now. But aside from that, it was a good process. <laughs> wow, that's great. So actually the information is still very timely. Three day turnaround. That's pretty good. No, that is, that was yeah. something that I thought was, was, was really nice about it. It's about 49 pages and you just, you go through it and you really packed in a lot of information in there, which I thought was was great. So if you are interested in... So how did you read it, Chrissy? I'm uh, curious. Did you read it on a Kindle or on an iPad? I read it on an iPad. Okay. How did that work out? Terrifically. I love... Oh, good. I love reading on my iPad. <laughs> so it, it was it was really easy. It went it actually scrolled down rather than across. So um, uh, I had to get used to that. So you had to just push you know push your finger up and down as opposed to side to side. But it was incredibly easy and 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 quick and. Um, yeah, it worked well. It I worked saw well. it on my wife's Kindle. My only regret about the uh, technology is it would have been fun, and I'm sure I could have done this, but I didn't ever learn how to put a few videos or you know, photographs or charts in the book because, again, since people are, tend to be reading on an iPad or a Kindle, you could link them to the Internet and, and you know, get them more multimedia stuff. But mm-hmm. that'll, that'll be my challenge next time around. And you can always add it. That's the good, you can add I it probably that. could. Probably could. And in fact, I wanted to say one more thing. If people are interested in the subject, probably besides my book, the best simple explanation of it is about a five to seven minute video at the Carbon Engineering website. That's the Bill Gates, David Keith company up in Calgary. And they've made a nice, I think it is seven minute video showing how the process works and explaining why they think it's important. Yep, that that's really that's excellent point because it, it it's good to get the visual. Um, I've I, I looked at that video and it's it's terrific to get the visual because it's 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 hard to understand exactly how you can scale this. It seems um, you know relatively simple, but it is uh, it is a complex. You know, it got you got into a little bit of the science. You know, in particular in the middle and the end of the book, and I was like, okay, I think I got it. I think I, I think I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, this. I'm not sure I got it. I do know, and this is true about everything about climate change, not just direct air capture. It's a big, big problem. You know, yep. nice as it is, I drive a Honda Civic Hybrid. You know, I recycle. I do all the right things personally. It's just going to take massive amounts of money and determination to deal with this problem. It's going to take, you know, solar on, you know, half the homes in America or wind in every state in America or, you know, electric cars by the tens of millions in China to to get to the kind of low carbon economy we need. And all of those things have to happen, um, you know, for this idea of sucking CO2 out Right. to be able to make a real difference. In other words, it's a complementary strategy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, we, we'll ask you a couple more questions, and I know you have to sure. catch, catch and up. We can talk about anything you want now. I think we've we've covered the book pretty well. Yeah, no, it's been that. fabulous. And, and actually, for our listeners, if you do want to um, purchase the book, one way to do it is to get on Mark Gunther's uh, website, uh, which is um, M-A-R-C 
Gunther, G-U-N-T-H-E-R.com. And you can actually click on Get It Now there. And um, obviously on Amazon as well, but that's a nice way to actually get to your site and check it out as well as, as the book. What about, sure. What about the, uh, I, I'm always puzzled by the, the question of, of, of first world versus, you know, now second and third world, where we are the leaders here in pretty much emitting CO2, in the, in the, at least historically. And now we're the ones yeah. that are trying to address the issue. And if, in order for, for the, the third world to come even close to where we are in terms of our quality of life, they need to build up their infrastructure, which is going to be emitting more and more carbon. How, how, do, we, how do we address that issue? That's something that I, I talk to a lot of people about. We haven't really led by example in the past. So it's really tough for us yeah. to come in and tell countries that they can't do what we did. I think that's, that's not an issue that we, meaning Americans, are likely to be able to solve. I mean, I think... It's a really hard issue. Mm -hmm. I think what we as Americans have to do is deal with our own problem, which is our own emissions, which although we are now, I believe, number two in the world behind China as a country, we're still right up there in terms of the per capita, per person emission. It's just that they have so many more people than we do. And also, by the way, they do a lot of the manufacturing of the consumer goods that we Use. So, you know, half the world's steel is made in China. It's not used in China. All of our, you know, iPods and iPhones and electronics and TV sets and video games and toys and clothing, most of all of that is made in China. So whose emissions are those? They get counted as China's emissions, but in effect, they're driven by the U.S. consumer economy. Mm-hmm. So I think our job is sort of first clean up our own act take the issue seriously, begin the transition to a low-carbon economy. As for the poor countries, I think what you have to hope for is that just as they haven't followed our model in some other areas, the example you always hear about is phones. So, you know, in Africa and India, I believe, I'm not an expert on this, but I believe there are many more cell phones than there are landlines because the cell technology is cheaper, easier to, to distribute, et cetera. So they kind of leapfrogged our 20th century technology and got into a 21st century technology. The hope would be that you know, as they begin to electrify, and there's still, I think, at least a billion, maybe it's two billion people in the world who literally don't have any electricity in their homes. Uh, they need it. I mean, their kids can't go to school, and they can go to school, but they can't study at night if they don't have, you know, lights to turn on. Um, the hope would be they won't build coal plants, but they'll build distributed solar, they'll build wind, maybe they will go nuclear, which to me is a you know low carbon option, although it raises other questions. And um, I don't know what our role exactly will be in encouraging them to do that. You could argue that, that we, you know, we owe a bit of a carbon debt to the world and maybe we should be helping to finance some of those technologies, or maybe maybe American companies can make money by selling them those technologies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all hard to say, but I'd say we have to, you know, do a lot better job of cleaning up our own act, and one would hope that those countries will, 
because particularly because they're vulnerable to climate impacts. You know, yeah. it's going to affect poor people more than it affects rich people. It's going to affect people in the tropics more than it affects people in temperate zones. You know, if you're in Canada and things get a little bit warmer, well, you're going to have to adjust. You're not going to be able to grow what you used to grow. You know, the ski resort may not mm -hmm. open this year. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a country which is dependent on tropical agriculture um, and, you know, rain patterns and temperature patterns change, I mean, your, your subsistence really may be threatened. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have a very um, self selfish or, you know, self-interested reason to deal with the problem in a way that richer countries uh, somewhat can avoid it. Right. You know, I don't think rich people are going to be victims of climate change, even if you own a house on the beach um, that, you know, is no longer appealing. If the beach has been swamped, you can build a house in the mountains. <sighs> right. <laughs> That's one way of dealing with it. Well, I, I, so I just uh, the last question I had for you was I know that you um, you presented yesterday at the Creating Climate Wealth North America 2012. And what did you just in, this was in D.C. and it's, I guess it's happening today as well. What, what was the general, uh, I guess, vibe there? What, what were people talking about? I know you spoke, but what? Um, well, I actually didn't speak. I just participated. But okay. um, so there. They, that's an interesting group, Carbon War Room. They're looking for big market-driven climate solutions. So they're right in line with everything we've been talking about. You know, things like uh, shipping, big ships, how they can emit less carbon, renewable jet fuels. Okay. They're doing some work with livestock. But the most interesting thing to me, and I blogged about this just now, I think it just went up minutes ago on okay. my blog, is another carbon-negative technology. And this one... You know, maybe a topic for another show. I can sure. steer you to an expert on this because I'm not one. Is this idea called biochar? And the idea here is you can take, take biomass, wood chips, corn, not corn to eat, but the corn stover from the plant, um, other uh, algae, any kind of biomass. You use a process which is called pyrolysis. You don't burn it, but you kind of compost it at very high heat. Huh. And you get two things. You get a fuel, which is useful, and then you get this thing called biochar, which is a kind of charcoal-like material. And at least in theory, if you bury that in the ground, then it seems to be good for farmers and good for restoring soil that isn't you know, not good soil and making it richer. It's another way of getting carbon out of the air and sequestering it. So oh. this is my peculiar interest at the moment is these so-called carbon negative technologies. I'll throw one more at you. And this one I'd only heard about for the first time yesterday. So sure. I'm not even not an expert. I don't, don't think I really understand it. But apparently if you grow a ton of shellfish in the ocean, the shells are made of CO2 and that, I mean, like, you know, say you grow gazillions of them or, mm -hmm. you know, many, many more than you do now. Just farm shellfish like everybody's eating shellfish every day. You get, you get the CO2 out of the ocean because the ocean CO2 and the air CO2 have to be in balance. You get it out of the air. So this, too, becomes a kind of carbon negative technology. So mm -hmm. the whole question is, are there ways not just to do low carbon technologies, but to do technologies that kind of, dial the problem back. So that was my takeaway from the uh, 
Department War Room event. That's cool. That's cool. I didn't realize that you you hadn't spoken, but it's always good to go to these these you know just like Verge a couple of weeks ago. You hear about these companies that are doing these things that you're just like it gives you hope. It gives you hope that it we're... does. There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there looking for kind of cool ways to both make money and feel like they're making a big difference in the world. And I, I really do admire those people. Yes. Well, I admire you. And I admire the fact that you are sitting at Dulles Airport. And you actually, and yeah, they, there's the first announcement. <laughs> you know, you, 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 it's, uh, you, it's been so quiet. I, I would think that you were in your library at home. So I, I so appreciate it. <laughs> Well, it's been very relaxing. I usually get to the airport like 15 minutes in advance. So oh, getting boy. here an hour in advance was great today. So <laughs> I thank love you, it. Chrissy. I love it. We'll have a safe tra- travel down to Houston, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for coming great. on. pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Chrissy. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.